I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, October 11th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we take a look at the next revolution in lighting the world. LED lighting has the potential to save the country billions of dollars over the next 20 years. And we talk with the author of a new book about how to save nature in a post-wild world. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Do you want to have one of your experiments conducted on the International Space Station? Well, Google and YouTube might just help you do that. One minor catch is that you have to be a teenager. YouTube Space Lab is accepting applications from students 14 to 18 years old to have their science experiments performed on the space station. The two winning projects will be launched this coming summer aboard the Japanese rocket to the ISS. Once they're on the station, the experiments will be carried out by astronauts and streamed live to the world on YouTube. The program is being run by Zahan Barmal, Google's head of marketing for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Barmal cooked up the idea as an entry in one of Google's internal competitions where founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page invited Googlers to propose projects. I pitched the idea, and lucky for me, the folks at Google liked it, said Barmal. The judges include astronauts from NASA, Europe, and Japan, the founder of Cirque du Soleil, and physicist Stephen Hawking. Project project applications are due on December 7th. To get full details, you can search Space Lab on YouTube.com. Playing in the dirt may seem quaint and nostalgic in today's world of technology fixation, but according to Richard Louvre, who will speak in Boulder on Thursday, playing in the dirt may be exactly what our society needs. Louvre entered the literary scene in 2005 with his best-selling book, Last Child in the Woods. In the book, he coined the term nature deficit disorder, which he defined as a syndrome triggered by the detrimentally gaping divide between children and the outdoors. This concept has informed national policy, as well as campaigns and communities across the country. In Lou's latest book, The Nature Principle, he says that adults also need to connect with nature. Surprise, right? The more high-tech we become, says Louv, the more nature we need. The author argues that nature can improve individuals, businesses, communities, and even economies. We could use that. Such a hopeful, if challenging, view of the future, according to Louv, must integrate nature, technology, and humanity. He'll bring his ideas to the CU Boulder campus this Thursday evening. His talk will be called Building a New Nature Movement for the 21st Century, Nature Deficit Disorder and the Nature Principle. It'll be held at 6.30 p.m. on October 13th in the University Memorial Center's Glenn Miller Ballroom. A book signing will round out the evening. For more information about the talk, go to his website, richardlouv.com. That's richardlouv.com slash appearances. And now... What science and tech anniversaries are we celebrating, Tom? Well, 200 years ago today, commercial steam-powered shipping got its start when the vessel Juliana commenced service between Hoboken, New Jersey, and New York City. And color television was born 61 years ago today when the FCC gave approval to CBS to begin broadcasting in color.
nature means something different to everyone. It's a thick, old-growth redwood forest to some. To others, it's the Rocky Mountains far beyond ranchettes. And yet to others, it's community gardens in Denver, Boulder, and other cities. Defining what is pristine nature is even more dicey. Just ask conservation biologists trying to figure out the best ways to preserve ecosystems and their flora and fauna. A new book sheds light on how notions of Wilderness preservation are evolving to accommodate the ever-changing natural world and to acknowledge our own role in nature. The book is called Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. Its author, Emma Harris, is a science journalist living in Columbia, Missouri. She's on the line to talk about her new book. Emma, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me. So first, before we get into what's your notion of a rambunctious garden, um, give us a little background in terms of explaining what the traditional approach to preserving wilderness areas and and, and the wild has been, you know, setting these historical baselines and such. Sure. Um, In North America especially, uh, I think that there's been a longstanding tradition of deciding that the most important thing to do is to preserve nature as it was before humans touched it, before humans altered it. Um, So this is the impetus behind such big parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite, which were set aside to be permanently apart from humanity other than humans visiting as tourists. And even before the native, you know, indigenous populations. Well, this is where it gets tricky, because when um, when this sort of ethic of preserving pristine places was formed, Um, there was a sort of a casual disregard for the way that people who lived here before Europeans might have changed the landscape. They sort of didn't count. Uh, So anything that Columbus saw when he stepped off the boat was considered to be a virgin wilderness. But we now know that that's far from true, that Indians who lived here changed the landscape a lot in Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways. So that makes this notion of returning to this Garden of Eden a little bit suspect. And suspect because there never was a static golden age of sorts? That Right. I, as I researched the book, I, I kept looking for sort of one place where we could hang our hat, one sort of little quiet moment before humans <laughs> changed things. And I could never find it. Because if you keep going back in time, uh, first you have the Europeans changing things, before that you have the Indians changing things, and before that you have their ancestors uh, driving large animals extinct like mammoths and mastodons. And then before they show up, you basically have ice uh, because you run into the Ice Age. So the problem is, is that there is no perfect time that we have this sort of moral duty to return to. It's been a moving target for thousands of years. In fact, one of the examples you give, um, maybe tell us a little bit about it in New Zealand, the uh, the plight of this huge flightless bird. Right. Yeah, now this is a great example. So I, I, in the book, I chronicle a lot of different changes that people in prehistory have made to, and in history, have made to landscapes. And one of the, the tidiest examples is the moa, because people, nobody got to New Zealand until something like 500 years ago. And there were these enormous birds that lived there. They were like big bird-sized <laughs> birds, fantastic creatures. And as soon as people got there, got out of their canoes, they took one look at these guys, and they just got started sharpening the knives. They were huge and delicious, and they killed them all within a couple generations, and they're just gone. Sort of like fishing in a barrel. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, you know, the the sort of archaeological record indicates that they just kind of ate the drumsticks and thighs and threw away the rest because they were so plentiful on the ground. 
So the sort of moral of the story is, is that you can't go back in time to sort of a pre-human perfect time because we've changed it too much and for too long. So then what's the alternative? You talk about this concept, um, I know you didn't invent it, so to speak, but this rewilding, it almost sounds like, <clears throat> excuse me, Disneyland for nature. Right. Well, that's, you know, so, right. So if you, if you say, I'm not going to look to the past necessarily, I'm not going to, my goal isn't going to be a perfect recreation of the way that this place was at a certain historical time, then suddenly you have all sorts of options about what you can do. You can restore to history. That's still an option. You can also uh, create all sorts of new spaces with new goals. And one of the goals might be to restore not the exact list of species, but the processes that used to be there. Like, so give, the, give an example of that. Yeah, so in the plains, the Great Plains, uh, before, um, you know, back in the Pleistocene, there would have been lots of really large animals, large herbivores eating the grass and, and trees and leaves, and large predators going after them. We're talking ground sloths and saber-toothed tigers. And they're all gone, and we're not going to get them back. But if we want to see how the ecosystem would respond to those kinds of processes of grazing and predation, we could bring in animals from Africa in small, you know, areas that are carefully controlled. We could bring in lions and tigers. We had lions and tigers of our own <clears throat> that are now extinct. We could bring in African lions and tigers and elephants and see how they do out on the Great Plains. It could be a fascinating experiment, and it could help preserve those animals that are in trouble in their home areas. It sounds kind of anathema to, um, well, for a lot of people, but especially some conservation biologists, I would imagine. I mean, it yeah. sounds like invasive species to save nature, which in well, fact right. you're saying can be the case, right? It was, I, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there, there, you know, that sort of let's bring African animals to the Great Plains is, is a real extreme case. But there are cases that are a lot more nuanced that 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 are are really testing people's uh, intuitions about what what co you know conservation is. So the one example is climate change is going to change environments so that little uh, certain animals and plants won't be able to live there anymore. Well, in fact, you talk in your book about the little pica, which we're yeah, familiar the pica, with here. Right, what, what's the local... story there? Right. So so imagine you're a pica and you're up on this mountain and your mountain is getting hotter and you can't take the heat. Well. Uh, you know, you can't just go to the next mountain north because that involves going down in this super hot valley. So you're kind of, you know, hooped. But you, uh, conservationists could come and pick you up and put you in a little box and carry you to the next mountain north, maybe to a mountain where you've never been before. <laughs> so a but, sort of taxi service, not just building corridors for them, right. but actually shuttling Physically them? Physically moving them. This sounds but sort of like geoengineering, you know, injecting... Sulfates. It's like biological engineering in a way. And it's very scary, right? Because if we take the, you know, the pikas are adorable and sweet. Who, how, how do we know? Maybe if we move them to a mountain further north, they'll suddenly turn into this incredibly invasive thing and they'll eat everything and they'll become a huge pest. We, we can't know. For, it's not risk-free. But on the other hand, if the creature is facing extinction, if we do nothing, then we're put in a position where we have to choose between risk and just watching a, a species go extinct. And in the minute we have, I'm curious, so who is we? I mean, it sounds like who, who would be the engineers who gets to rule this world? Ah, that is an excellent question, perhaps the subject of my next book. I mean, I think <laughs> that for something like um, moving creatures, if the, if the conservation biologists are too um, fastidious to do it because it means messing with the, their notions of what is pristine, then my prediction is that regular people will do it because they're not going to want to stand around and watch things go extinct. They love plants and animals too much. So I think that if the scientists don't do it, everybody else will. 
So our backyard rambunctious gardens and such? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work that everyday people can do in their own little tiny backyards and in their own balcony spaces for conservation, and that's one big thing I talk about in the book. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, That was Emma Maris, author of the new book called Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. You can find out more about her book and Emma herself at emmamaris.com. That's M-A-R-R-I-S. Thanks again. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. Lighting our homes and businesses consumes about 10% of our electricity, in part because our light bulbs are so inefficient. Compact fluorescents have helped the problem, but they've had a difficult time gaining traction in the marketplace. A new technology based on light-emitting diodes is on the cusp of making a major transformation in how we light up our lives. To fill us in on that story, we have Jeff Bisberg in the studio with us. Jeff is the CEO and co-founder of Albio Technologies right here in Boulder. Jeff, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Tom. Jeff, before we get to the details of your company's product, uh, give us a little history on, on lighting. It's fascinating. Well, to date, there's only really been three types of electrical lighting that go back 80 to 100 years. Arc lamps, in, uh, incandescent lighting, and fluorescent light. These old technologies are fragile, high voltage, often contain uh, neurotoxin, mercury, and there's been no other choice. Finally, with the technology coming of age, LED is now able to offer uh, consumers of light fixtures an energy-efficient, robust uh, new choice for their lighting solutions. Okay, and and electric lighting uh, way back when had an environmental benefit. It, It saved some whales, didn't it? Well, certainly one of the early transitions was from whale oil to actually regular oil and then to uh, lighting. And certainly lighting played a key role in the Industrial Revolution, really allowing people much higher levels of productivity, really to to start the ball rolling to where we're at today. Okay. Now, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Albio Technologies and uh, what sort of lighting products uh, your company makes? Sure. Albio Technologies designs, markets, and sells white LED lighting for industrial and commercial spaces. These are LED versions of the most common fluorescent and high-intensity discharge light fixtures that go into grocery stores or retail stores. You'll see them in warehouses, and we just did the eighth largest data center in the world. So LED lighting, our, our market tends to be more on the industrial side, but we're seeing LED going into the residential space also. Hmm. Okay, Ken, can we see them uh, here in Boulder? Certainly, you can go to your local stores, whether it's uh, McGuckin's or or Home Depot, and uh, on the shelf, the LED lights are sold right next to the CFLs and the incandescent lights. They're uh, quite a bit more expensive at this point. Uh, LED lighting is one of these exponential technologies. It's There's no specific law of physics that's behind it, but it's been improving at exponential rates now for uh, since it was invented in 65, and very soon we'll see the price of these LED lights come down within a factor of two of traditional lighting technology. Okay, so it's uh, the in, in increase is sort of like uh, the famous Moore's Law, but applied to uh, uh, lighting uh, rather than computers? Correct. There is a uh, similar analogy to uh, the computer law. This particular one for lighting is called Hates's Law, basically saying that the performance 
doubles roughly every 18 months and the cost comes down roughly 18 months. And we've actually seen that accelerate over the last two years as additional investment and focus on LED lighting has accelerated the accelerating curve. Okay, so you were one of the founders of uh, LBO. Uh, what got you interested in LED lighting? You know, uh, my history goes back with LED lighting. When I first got out of school, I went to work for Polaroid, and they were in the transition in the early 80s, moving from analog film to digital cameras, and I was part of a group that was using LEDs to make a digital printer. And it was the inability for that traditional analog company to convert successfully to a digital technology that eventually led to its bankruptcy. And that sort of gave me some of my early insight how digital technologies can fundamentally change and redefine marketplaces. And we're right on the cusp of seeing that happening in the general lighting space using LED as the instrument of change. Okay. Now, most of us probably know uh, sort of how incandescent bulbs work with a glowing filament. Uh, uh, fluorescents are uh, still magic to, uh, to most of us. Uh, can you give us a slightly non-technical elevator pitch for how an LED works? Sure, Tom. LEDs are a piece of semiconductor material, and semiconductors all, all around us in our devices that we use and the computers that we're on. And the LED is a very special type of a semiconductor. Uh, you could think of it as uh, a different, you know, analogy I often use with people is the foods you eat. There are some foods that are edible, some foods that are inedible. In semiconductors, there are some semiconductors that produce light, some semiconductors don't. LED uses a semiconductor that happens to produce light, and you put electricity into it and light comes out of it. And it's a pretty straightforward uh, process that uses that fundamental physics. The technology, the efficiency of that, has been improving steadily, as I had mentioned earlier, since 1965, and we're at a position now where a little bit of electricity can now produce a lot of light with this material. Okay, so, so can you go through some of the advantages of LEDs relative to incandescence and compact fluorescence? You know, with any change from analog to digital comes um, advantages, and let's be honest about it, there's uh, some disadvantages also, but the advantages here are numerous, and I just sort of jotted down 10 of them. You know, number one, energy efficiency. Number two is lifetime. These LEDs last 100,000 hours, um, so it's much longer lifetime, which really means to a business less maintenance on their lighting so systems. So that's like uh, 12 years of constant use, huh? 12 years of constant use, and practically people don't use the lights constantly, so that's you know might be double if you use it half, half the amount of time. Mm -hmm. There's colors. There's no UV in it. They're very durable. They're very difficult to break. There's no glass. Uh, many sizes, they're instant on, you can dim them, they're low voltage, low temperature. So you can see there's a long list of benefits. Any one of those benefits is really enough for a specific market to really rally behind that technology. Of course, the disadvantage is cost. Right now, the LED light systems are probably four to five times the cost of traditional incandescent or fluorescent lighting systems. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that exponential is going to take care of that pretty soon for okay, us. Okay, so I was in the hardware store the other day, and they were either 40 or $50, but uh, that's just a temporary thing, you see. Uh, you know, it's it's about $40 for a 60-watt bulb. And the other analogy I like to use is, is the laptops or the computers, where for the long time in the 80s, the computer was $1,500, and we saw incremental improvements in performance, but the price stayed the same. And then eventually it hit a critical performance point where the price started to come down, and now you can get a laptop three, $400. Okay. And, and we'll, we'll see that similar 
transition with the LED lighting. Okay, and did you have no mercury on your list? Uh, that's in the compact fluorescence. Uh, we've got... Uh, yeah, so no mercury is uh, a key one. You know, mercury is one of the worst neurotoxins, and there's a waste stream that's associated with it. You know, all it would take would be a dozen fluorescent bulbs to potentially contaminate a reservoir. So it's getting, it's a more sustainable technology. It gets the, gets the toxics out of the waste stream. Okay. Now, a lot of people complain about the color of compact fluorescence. Uh, mm. Can LEDs replicate that, that warm color that the lovers of uh, incandescence uh, find so hard to give up? Good question. You know, the, let's just take it up one notch first. The color is kind of defined by the sun. That's the best color we evolved underneath the sun, and that seems more natural. And incandescent light uses the same uh, thermal processes to make light that the sun does. So uh, the fluorescent and LED use uh, phosphors in order to create that light. So it's a, a mix of the phosphors. And as the technology matures and more focus is put onto that color aspect, uh, the technology has improved greatly. Now, there's a wide range of solutions in the marketplace. And what we're sort of seeing is that early stage of the technology where uh, some of the less expensive, perhaps cheaper products in the market have not uh, used the higher quality LEDs that are out there. So the quality is evolving. I think um, we focused on the industrial space where the light quality perhaps is not as stringent as in uh, some of the other markets, but we also do retail stores where we have the highest quality lighting. Okay. Uh, so the, the 2007 Energy Bill, also known as the Energy Independence and Security Act, uh, is, gonna, is going to have some uh, tough uh, lighting efficiency standards, and, and those will start hitting in January. Uh, can you, you briefly describe that and, and say how it might uh, um, help the industry? Yes. As you had uh, mentioned early on, lighting accounts for 10% of you know, the energy in the United States. So any efficiency that we can put into the lighting system is really easy energy to save, easy money to save. And these standards will quickly move us into some uh, low-hanging fruit for energy savings. Very important. Okay. Jeff, we have about uh, 30 seconds left. Uh, anything we left out? Or, or perhaps give us your company website for people to get more information? Sure. Uh, we'd love it to, uh, if anyone has interest, just come to visit our website, www.albiotech.com. That's A-L-B-E-O-T-E-C-H. Dot com, and we'd love to tell you more about LED lighting. Okay. That was Jeff Bisberg of Albio Technologies. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Tom. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced by Tom McKinnon and engineered by Shelley Schlinder. Executive producer is also Tom McKinnon. And special thanks to Brianna Draxler for headline help. Our theme music was written by, written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music by Jeffrey Orima. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon.